David was able to rejoice in the most difficult of circumstances. And here was a situation where he rejoiced that someone had the boldness to confront him in his sin and rescue him from the danger that that sin posed. First uh, Samuel 25. And I want you to realize Abigail by herself is facing a whole army of pretty hostile people. Okay, This is a bold move on her part. And we're going to pick up at verse 23. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me let this iniquity be. And please, let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please, let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. And now, this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. And it shall come to pass, when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my servant, then remember your maidservant. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that you would sanctify us. Help us to grow more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ as we consider the beauty of your scripture. We love you and we commit ourselves to you as we continue to worship in our responses to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, Jewish tradition makes Abigail one of seven prophetesses in the Old Testament. And actually, I've got a couple of modern commentaries, like the New American Commentary, uh, takes the same position. And there are five hints in this speech that make them think this. First of all, in verse 26, she says that it is the Lord himself who was holding David back. Not just her, it's the Lord holding him back. Second, she gives accurate predictions of David's victory in the future and kingship. Third, David acknowledges in verse 32 that God had sent her to him. Fourth, David told her that he would obey her voice in verse 35. Well, that implies she's got authority, you know, in her voice, they say. And then fifth, in verse 35, David said that he respected her person. People say that that's almost like she has an office here. Now, there are other people who are not quite so convinced by the evidence. I haven't, in my mind, uh, fully, uh, totally made up my mind on, on this issue. 
But whether she was a prophetess or not, and I lean in the direction that she was, her speech is a remarkable speech. Uh, just out of curiosity, it's the longest uh, a speech of a woman that's recorded in the Bible. But this is an absolutely incredible display of both interposition, which we have looked at in the past, as well as of peacemaking. And um, this morning, I want to answer the question, why was she so successful? She single-handedly stops a whole army of men dead in their tracks. Okay, she, she uh, uh, has... Uh, through her speech, even though she's a, a weak woman, she is able to stop these angry men who are lusting for blood at this point. Why is that the case? And I would say, well, there's two parts to the answer. The first part is obviously that God prospered her. I have seen peacemakers who have done everything according to the book, everything well. They've depended upon the Lord and they've not been successful. And there wasn't anything wrong with their peacemaking. It was just that one or more of the parties had dug their heels in. They were not going to give in. They were dead set to follow through on their sin. And there wasn't anything that they could do about it. And so we are totally dependent upon the Lord for success in peacemaking. And I think she was depending upon the Lord. And that is the ultimate reason God gave her success. But this sermon is going to focus on the characteristics of her peacemaking. If God had not matured her spiritually to this point to have the kind of humility and the wisdom and the tact and all of the other things that the, the various peacemaking passages of Scripture say we need to have there, uh, she likely would not have been successful. So we're going to be taking a very quick look over this passage, 15 different characteristics that are essential in peacemaking. First, she went into this peacemaking with no arrogance or pride showing. Let's begin reading at verse 23 again. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said. This was a position both of respect as well as of pleading. Now granted, her husband's life was in danger, but when people come with this kind of a posture, um, you can see it's not just a posture here. Her, the whole tone of her speech uh, flowed from genuine humility. When pride is present, it's very easy for our anger to flare and for the whole peacemaking process to be destroyed. Uh, when pride is present, it's easy to see other people's sins, very hard to see our own sins, and that too destroys the peacemaking process. Now, on, on my part, I don't really... See much blame in her at all. She takes some blame upon herself. But still, her humility enabled her to look at this whole problem from David's perspective. If you're a proud person, you can't do that. Humility gives us a whole new set of eyes. It enables us to look at the problem from a, a different vantage point than a, a person would ordinarily do. And this is why Galatians 6 says that those who intervene, those who are engaged in the peacemaking process, restoring a brother who is found in sin, they've got to be humble. Humility is absolutely essential. She's not making demands or pridefully rebuking David. What David was doing deserved rebuke. There's no doubt about it. It was a rash move that would have involved him in murder, and he realizes that later on. 
But her humble petition to please listen to your maidservant stops him in his tracks. There is a power in humility. There is a power in humility. And there's nothing that turns an angry man off more quickly than seeing arrogance and pride in the person that he's angry with, right? And uh, certainly Scripture says if you meet anger with anger, it's just going to blow everything up and out of proportion. But humility injects a critical component into peacemaking. It indicates to others that you're going to be reasonable in the whole process that you're going through. By the way, you can start off humble, and then because of the orneriness of the other person, his stubbornness, you know, and his sin and his mouthiness at you, you, you ditch humility aside, you get angry. And what happens is now it's not just a conflict between those two parties. Now the peacemaker is in a competition with this guy and it messes up the whole process. So I'm telling you, this is not just a throwaway point. This is absolutely critical to peacemaking. There must be humility. The second thing that we see is that she was willing to take heat so that others could be saved. Look at verse 24. On me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. In other words, she was willing to take the blame and to suffer the consequences for that blame. This is, this is absolutely remarkable, and it shows the degree of love that she had for her despicable husband. And we saw before, he, he was despicable. This is not blind love, because she does point out his sins, Right? This is not enabling love. We talked about, you know, alcoholics and drug addicts where the the spouse just won't do anything. It's an enabling. No, she is doing the opposite of enabling. She is intervening even without his permission. This is not a doormat passivity. This is anything but passivity. But this is a God-given love that cares about others so much that she is willing to suffer on their behalf. And I can assure you this is not something man-made. This is the same kind of a burden, the same kind of love that God's Spirit gave to the Apostle Paul in Romans 9. In fact, I want you to turn to Romans 9. And I should mention before I read this little section here is that the Apostle Paul was engaged in the greatest peacemaking process of all. He was one who was seeking to reconcile men to God. All men are at enmity with God, and apart from uh, Christ bearing the punishment in their stead, they are going to be in trouble. They will be spending an eternity in hell. So what he is doing is he's saying, I long for the salvation of these people. Now listen to these words, beginning at verse 1. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now, why does Paul, the apostle, have to say, I'm not lying? I mean, you would expect the apostle is going to be telling the truth. This is inspired scripture, right? But what he is about to say is so unbelievable that he has to insist, look, I am not lying. I'm not exaggerating. What he's about to tell them is, I wish I could go to hell if it would mean that my brothers, uh, the Jewish brethren, who are not saved right now, could be saved. And it's so unbelievable, he has to insist, I am not lying. He says that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, 
to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. What he is doing is he is opening up his heart and saying, Brothers, I want you to see the kind of passion I have for people who are outside of Christ. I long for their salvation. I'm willing to take heat on their behalf. And indeed, uh, he did take heat on their behalf. And this is the kind of self-sacrificing attitude that can make a peacemaker more successful. Now, let me emphasize that no peacemaker is ever 100% successful. Paul was probably the greatest peacemaker. He's the greatest evangelist anyway. He was trying to reconcile people to Christ, greatest peacemaking around, and yet people hated him for it. They wanted to kill him for it. They persecuted him for it. And so there's no guarantee that there is going to be success in your peacemaking efforts. But uh, Paul was uh, probably the most successful evangelist ever, in part, probably the greatest part because he was gifted at it by God, But there was a part of his success that depended upon the fact he exemplified the principles we're going to be looking at in this uh, chapter in Abigail. He exemplified them very well. One of those was his willingness to take heat so that others might be saved. Now, commentators point out that Abigail's whole reason for doing this was to rescue her husband, that husband who was so mean-spirited. She wanted to rescue her husband. She probably would not have personally been killed. In fact, she could have got out from under an abusive situation. But she longed for her husband's salvation. She was willing to take the heat of David's fury in order to save others. Now, some of you might be tempted to do the exact opposite. You know, with the media blitz, uh, uh, with my name being slandered, some of you might have been tempted to take offense Honestly, I have not taken offense. I can understand where some of these people are coming from, and I hold, hold no ill will whatsoever to them. In fact, I am convinced that God is going to use this and already is using this to advance His cause and to bring some of these people to salvation. And if my name is slandered uh, for the advancement of His cause, so be it. Uh, I hold no ill will. I think God has enabled me to approach this whole thing and enable me to continue to to love them. I can honestly say that. The third thing that I see in Abigail is that she appeals to David rather than making demands on David. Now, granted, she's not in a very good position to be making any demands, right? He's there with an army uh, ready to slaughter some of her relatives. Even if she was a prophetess, you know, she probably was not in a good position. But her approach is the approach that is the most likely to gain a hearing. Abigail wisely says, And please, let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. And she has this language of appeal all the way through. She keeps saying, please, and your maidservant, and and expressions of humble appeal to David. Now, if a guy is so mad that he doesn't want to listen to anybody, he's uh, lusting for blood like David was there, you're saying... Please, listen to what a friend has to say is much more likely to break through the anger than saying, what is wrong with you? You know, get over this nonsense. You've got to stop it, okay? Now, there is a place biblically for both of those approaches, but when I have used the latter approach, it's usually not worked very well. <laughs> you know, peacemakers 
seek to give a soft answer. Uh, their approach is very much like Abigail here. The most successful peacemakers almost always approach things that way. They're not just concerned about telling the truth, which Abigail does do. They're also concerned about the way the truth is said, the context and the motive. Now, it's not as if she is covering for Nabal's sin, not at all. Take a look at verse 25. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. She is saying, look, I agree with you that Nabal is in the wrong here. Everybody knows his character. I'm not trying to cover for him, but this is not the way to handle the problem. Okay, that's basically what she is saying. And you might think, okay, now she's taking sides with David. Well, I don't think so. This is not an issue of taking sides with one person or the other, even though she's agreeing with uh, with the offense that David has. But if you're going to engage in interposition, you need to be prepared to protect all sides and point out the error in all sides. Minimization of sin is enabling pure and simple. It doesn't solve the problem. And she doesn't either cover for Nabal or cover for David. She's gracious, and yet she points out the sin of both. Let me take, uh, have you take, just jump ahead for a sec and take a look at how she points out uh, David's sins. Verse 26, let's see, the third clause there. She describes what David is attempting as coming to bloodshed and secondly, avenging yourself with your own hand. And then in verse 31, she makes it very clear that it would be shedding blood without a cause. In other words, it would be murder. There was absolutely no justification for the slaughter he was going to engage in. So she doesn't ignore the sin of either of these parties in this conflict. And this is a very important part of peacemaking. If you minimize the sin of one party, the other person is going to be offended. They're going to feel like you're not being fair with them. Uh, If you just emphasize the sin of one party how are you going to be bringing the two together it's not minimizing sin it's dealing with the sin and um, and uh, trying to bring reconciliation despite the fact that sin is present now the fifth thing that i see here is in the second clause of verse 25 but i your maidservant did not see the young men of my lord whom you sent So she's giving new information to David that David was not aware of, and she's encouraging David to look at all sides, all angles of this problem. There's more than just Nabal involved here. She's saying, have you considered my involvement in this whole situation? Uh, When there is a clash of personalities, both parties tend to have tunnel vision, don't they? All they're focused on is, I've been hurt. I'm really upset with what this person has done. And so they don't have the ability to look at alternative explanations, alternative solutions, or even what the collateral damage might be. They tend to have tunnel vision. Did David give anyone else a chance to fix the problem? No, he's going to punish the whole group, even though there were some in that group who were ignorant of what Nabal uh, had, uh, uh, had done. And so one of the jobs of a peacemaker is to inject new information into the discussion that the two parties have not seen, they're not aware of. And of course, there's a sense in which everything that she says is injecting new information. Look at verse 26. We see that Abigail is seeking to be impartial. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives 
and as your soul lives. Uh, she is taking an oath that she is telling the truth. So her goal is not to manipulate the outcome. Her goal is not to say, okay, I can say anything, just to make sure a confrontation doesn't happen. This is one of the reasons I don't like uh, uh, the movie The Negotiator, as entertaining as it is. Um, in that movie, the negotiators are saying things that aren't even true just in order to get the outcome. That's not a biblical approach. Now, it was an entertaining movie. But um, uh, what she is doing is she is saying, look, I am coming at this with impartiality. I am seeking to be truthful and honest before God and before you. And she's going to immediately dive into pointing out David's sin as well. But this phrase is highlighting the fact she is seeking to be honest and have integrity before God. Now, in verse 26, she goes on to say, Since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed. Now, that's an interesting phrase because it's put in the past tense. And one liberal commentator said, ah, that just must be a verse that God transposed. It must have uh, uh, belonged originally in the back, uh, you know, afterwards. And no, commentators say that's impossible. There's no evidence that this verse is out of place. They say that what's going on is that she is simply assuming that David will do the right thing once he understands the situation. She is assuming the best about uh, David. Now, it may be it was a prophetic utterance, but either way you look at it, it doesn't really matter. When we assume the best in other people, we often get it. When we assume the worst in other people, we often get it, right? The worst. And so it almost becomes self-fulfilling prophecy. But when you've got two believers who are in conflict, they're both indwelt by the Spirit of God, then even more so, we should be having the 1 Corinthians 13 kind of a love that believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In fact, I, I want to read that whole, whole section there. 1 Corinthians 13, why don't you turn with me? Because I think Abigail exemplifies all of the phrases in 1 Corinthians 13 so well. Verse 1, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I have become sounding brass or a claiming, clanging cymbal. Now, in terms of peacemaking, you can be the most skilled speaker in the world and still be unsuccessful. Speaking alone, gifts of speaking alone is not what makes for peacemaking. In fact, it's probably the smaller portion of what makes for peacemaking. Anyway, going on, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now, I think when you look at each of the characteristics that are in that, that chapter that are being desc describing love, I think you'll have to agree, Abigail has all of them. She is a remarkable, remarkable woman. One of those descriptions is that love rejoices in the truth. 
does not tell a lie. And so Abigail's going to tell the truth, even if David could get offended over this telling of the truth. Now, she tries to do it very gently, but she still rejoices in the truth. And that's point eight in your outlines. Uh, She's couched her language in such tactfulness, humility, and grace that it makes it easier for David to swallow, but her peacemaking efforts did not overlook the seriousness of David's sins. And it's in having pointed out the sins of both David and Nabal that she could be taken seriously when she sides with David in the overall scheme uh, of things. That's point number nine. In other words, she's not engaging in bootlicking. You know what bootlicking is? There's some more crude expressions people use for that, but bootlicking. She's not engaged in that at all. She is interested in glorifying God in the process. Now, it is appropriate to take sides. I mean, sometimes there is a right one and a wrong one. You can't just say every situation there is going to be wrong on both sides. There can be uh, a, a taking of sides so long as in the process you're seeking to please God. And if people say, hey, how come you're not taking my side? How come you're taking his side? Your response should really be, well, I'm trying to be for both of you, but ultimately all three of us need to be on God's side. We need to be on Scripture's side. It's not about whose side we should be taking. Let's look to the Lord. We're here to please Him. So if you're trying to side with God when you disagree with either person, it will not be perceived as a personal rejection quite as easily. And obviously there's neighbors out there who could care less. They're so self-centered that unless you blindly agree with them on everything, they're not going to be satisfied. But you just have to deal with that. You, 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 you know, you're not going to be able to please everybody. And here, ultimately, we are to be pleasing to God. Now, you may wonder about my summary of uh, verse 27 in the outline, and that's why I've put the two possibilities in question marks. But let me read it first and then comment on it. She says, And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. She is providing something that her husband refused to provide earlier. That was what made the whole situation a mess, right? Peacemaking is not simply about getting the two sides to stop arguing. You know, quit arguing. You've got to bury the hatchet. No, it's about trying to resolve the issues that have caused the conflict in the first place. Now, she's in a position where she's able to do so, so she does. But I've put a question mark behind it because she doesn't call it restitution. She calls it a gift or present, or literally in the Hebrew, it's a blessing. And it may flow from the fact that even though Nabal had clearly sinned, she was going to point out to David that he could not insist on a payment. Why was that? She's about to say that the bloodshed would be without cause, without cause. So even though she's addressing David's hurt feelings, she's not necessarily admitting that this is restitution. But either way, I think my first point stands that David could demand, whether David could demand it or not, she wanted to make sure that wrongs were rectified. Now, in verse 28, she asked forgiveness for even her unintentional oversight. She had already insisted that she didn't know that the messengers had come and had asked for any consideration. And you can see here, she is tiptoeing around some landmines so carefully. Commentators have pointed out she really cannot uh, be uh, disloyal to her husband. David could not have respected her on that. So she can't be disloyal to her husband. What does she do? She takes his blame upon herself. But... 
On the other hand, by taking the blame, by calling it a trespass, which is a synonym for a sin, she's agreeing with David, yes, this was a sin, but she's taking the blame. But she says it in such a way that she doesn't want to say that she's agreeing with everything that David is doing because she's going to be confronting him on his sin. So she is tiptoeing here very, very carefully. And this brings up uh, another thing that needs to be highlighted in peacemaking. It sometimes requires incredible tactfulness. One commentator thought she was simply asking forgiveness for talking too long. I don't think so, and most commentators don't think so. She really feels bad that Nabal had not given these guys who had for months protected their sheep and done all of these things that he hadn't given them anything, hadn't shown any appreciation. She would have done it herself. And she feels very bad that his feelings are hurt, and so she's got this goodwill gift to patch up the feelings. But she does call it a present. Now, the twelfth thing I see is that she affirms what is good in David. Now, this I find really incredible because David is about to engage in something that is monstrously evil, totally, totally out of proportion with the degree of sin that Nabal had engaged in. It's monstrously evil, and yet she is focusing on the good things that David is doing. Very, very interesting. Uh, I think this is very important as well to peacemaking. When you point out sins in a David... It's very easy for him to only see the criticism. And so she's careful to not ignore the huge amount of good that David has done. And by doing this, it will actually add power to her point that all of this could be lost on other people if he insists on acting rashly. You've got such a good reputation, David, and it's all going to be blown up in this one selfish act. So here are the three things that she says she appreciates about David. First of all, she affirms that she believes God's promises that he will indeed be king. She's in agreement with those God-given promises. Verse 28 goes on to say, For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. He will be king. But as uh, she shortly is going to point out, that carries some responsibilities with it, to act consistently with that part, right? Second, She appreciates the fact that David has been very sacrificial for the Lord. She says, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord. Now, again, this is a subtle reminder that he needs to continue to serve the Lord. He needs to continue to, uh, to war his battles and not his own, not his own pride that he is protecting. But she's saying it positively. Up until this time, she's basically saying, you certainly have been serving the Lord, and I appreciate that third thing she appreciates is that he has had an impeccable reputation. Uh, Last part of verse 28, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. And the implication is shortly going to be made by her. You might lose that good reputation if you follow through on your plans. So think about your good reputation. So even the good that she mentions in David, she's going to leverage to be making her point. Points 13 and 14 give two more ways that she's seeking to be positive about David before she launches into her final reason that what he was doing was wrong. She shows sympathy for the difficult straits that David has found himself in. He really was in a tough spot because he has no way of making a living. He's running from spot to spot. He's totally dependent on the goodwill of others. So she says, Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life. 
Even though she's not going to excuse his sin, she certainly understands the pressures that he is feeling as he's running away from Saul. And so she shows sympathy and understanding. And that, too, is such an important part of peacemaking. But even here, there's no excuse. Instead, she encourages David to look to God in faith during that trying situation. And we're going to begin a second part of verse 29 through verse 30. But the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies I shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. And it shall come to pass, when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you ruler over Israel. And I'll stop right there. Even though it doesn't look like God's promises are being fulfilled, I mean, David's running. Why is God not doing anything for him? She says, by faith, she believes God's promises, and she's encouraging David to believe God's promises as well. And the images she uses here are absolutely wonderful. First image is she's likening David's life to the precious jewels and money that a householder would wrap up in a cloth. That's the, the meaning of that word there. Uh, they, they wrap it up for safekeeping. So what she is saying to David is, you are precious in the sight of the Lord. You, he will bundle up for safekeeping. You're his jewel. You can trust him to protect you. That's exactly what she is saying. And uh, there are so many marvelous implications. An entire sermon could be preached on that little verse right there. You ought to study it for yourself sometime. It has been so encouraging to me that we are likened to jewels that God wraps up for safekeeping. Okay? Second image is of a sling that God is whirling around and getting ready to release, and the stone that he's about to throw out of that sling is David's enemies. David is bound up. He's protected. God's enemies are going to be slung far away. And so since David was a slinger, this is a very powerful image for him. Um, who is God shooting at? He's shooting enemies. His enemies are in that sling. He's shooting the enemy. Well, he'd be shooting against his enemies, right? So he's using his enemies to fight against his enemies. And that too has marvelous, marvelous implications that I wish we could delve into, but we don't have the time to delve into. Marvelous image. God can make even the slander and the attacks of Satan and uh, Satan's minions to backfire on them. You know, and to, to advance his own kingdom. That's exactly what she is saying. Wonderful metaphor. Then she reminds David of the promises that God had made to him through Samuel. God had promised that David was going to be a king. He was going to have an established house. He was going to prosper. And uh, how did she know about those promises? Well, if she was a prophetess, God could have revealed those to her. But if you read the whole story of this book, you realize that by this time, the news of Samuel's anointing and the news that he's going to be the king, you know, Jonathan's been spreading the news himself. Uh, I think it's been pretty widespread. But either way, she is calling David to walk by faith in the promises of God and what he has been contemplating would be to do the exact opposite. Now, here is the important thing to consider here, and I should have put it in your notes, but I didn't. Of the previous 14 points that we have covered, 12 of them don't deal directly with David's sin. Isn't that interesting? Okay, they're preliminaries. 
Here is the crisis. David's the crisis. His sin is a major crisis, and yet she talks about her, uh, his sin. It's the minority uh, portion uh, of the speech. And I find that very, very uh, significant. Um, there is a sense in which all of these things are preliminary to pointing out the stupidity of what David is doing. It's giving perspective. Once he has perspective... It's easy to convince him. She didn't have to be harping on the sin. And this too should inform our peacemaking. If the only thing we do in peacemaking is to point out other people's sins, we're missing out on the kind of affirmation that is almost always needed. Peacemakers seek to understand the why, the wherefore, the circumstances that have led to the, uh, to the conflict. They don't bash the parties. They show that they care for both of these parties. In fact, they have to bend over backwards to show that they care. And they've got uh, humility and they've got the kind of, of understanding and sensitivity that is needed. In fact, that's one of the reasons why Galatians 6 says peacemakers must bear one another's burdens while they're bearing their own burdens. So if you're bearing the burdens of the person you're confronting with their sin, it's like the sugar that helps the bitter medicine go down, right? And that's where we're getting to is the bitter medicine, verse 31. And I want to look at it phrase by phrase. And even this is worded so carefully. She says that she has interposed herself because she does not want David to later regret his action. She's still for him, even though she disagrees with what he's doing. She says that this will be no grief to you, nor offensive heart to my Lord. So she's saying, look, David, this is something you're not going to be proud about in the future. In fact, it is going to bring grief to you, and it's going to be an offense to your heart. Now, grief is the result of David's sin. Offense is the character of David's sin. And interestingly, what she's trying to do is she's trying to give David a perspective, his own perspective from the future. And that's what a lot of peacemaking is about. That's why I should have put an entire new point in here on this. It's giving perspective. Peacemakers try to get, these two parties are fighting, try to get both parties to look at the other person's perspective, look at the perspective of what the onlookers are going to think, look at God's perspective, and even look at your own future perspective in the future. She is convinced David is going to regret this in the future. This is a stupid move. You're going to bring grief to yourself in the future. Next, she tries to get him to see the seriousness of the sin in its own right. Sin is sinful just for its own sake. It's, it, it's, a, uh, it, it's, it's a, a wicked thing all on its own. Now, here's what he's going to regret. Either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. Now, the first charge was that he was about to shed blood without cause. That's a euphemistic way of saying it was murder. Now, killing somebody in self-defense is with cause, so that is not murder. But unless the Bible specifically authorizes the spilling of blood, you're engaged in murder. And as David himself pointed out, 99% of all spilling of blood, it's the civil magistrate alone who was allowed to do it. Self-defense, yes. But vengeance, no. In the previous chapter, David had written uh, one of his imprecatory psalms, Psalm 35, and in that psalm he pronounces curses on all people who spill blood without cause. So that means in the previous chapter, chapter 24, he is 
despising the very thing that he's wanting to do right now. Now, in the future, he's going to write another psalm. It's Psalm 7, in which he will pronounce a curse on himself. If I have spilled blood without cause, Lord, you curse me. So it's a serious sin. He did not like the idea of spilling blood without cause. The second thing she's accusing him of is acting as a revolutionary or that my Lord has avenged himself. Now, when the New Testament commands us to not take vengeance into our own hands, simply quoting the, the Old Testament. There's not a change between Old and New Testaments there. It's quoting Deuteronomy 32 and Proverbs uh, 25 and other passages like that. And I think this would have stuck to David like glue because he had spent so much time in the previous chapters telling his men that it was wrong for private citizens to take vengeance. He refused to raise the sword against Saul. He refused to raise the sword against Doeg, because, even though Doeg was going to report him to Saul. And it would have been hypocritical for him to write those psalms against Saul. If he had acted as a revolutionary, he would have reaped revolution in his own life. And of course, that's exactly what happened uh, toward the end of his life when he killed Uriah the Hittite. What happens? He reaps revolution after revolution in his own, in his own kingdom. <clears throat> and so the Old Testament principle that she is stating here, I think is so well summarized in two New Testament passages. Let me read those for you. Romans twelve nineteen. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. How does God repay? Well, the next chapter tells us. Romans chapter 13 tells us God repays with vengeance through the civil magistrate and through his providential judgments. When we give the vengeance of Romans 13 to the civil magistrate, then we are freed up to love as Romans 12 commands us to do. It commands us to bless those who curse us commands us to do good to those who persecute us. And when it says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. What's he quoting? Proverbs 25, the Old Testament, right? Second passage explicitly, again, quotes civil penalties of the Old Testament and then goes on to say, for we know him who said vengeance is mine. Okay, civil penalties, God's vengeance. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. There has been a lot of controversy recently over my views on the death penalty. But the irony is that unless citizens clearly see what is the jurisdiction of the state and its limitations and what is the jurisdiction of the citizen, then nobody has protection. If anybody can decide what the penalty should be, then the government can do anything. You know, one month... They can wax, uh, you know, Christians. Another month they can wax somebody else. There will be nothing to hinder them from doing that other than the opinions of people. But opinions of people change. This is the irony. If you take away God's protection, everybody is in trouble. The death threats that I've been receiving show that these people think they can take vengeance into their own hands. We don't believe that. It's the very opposite for us. Because we truly believe that the first few va uh, verses of chapter 13 of Romans belong to the government, that vengeance is in their jurisdiction, we are freed up to love our enemies, to do good to those who do bad to us, to bless those who curse, to preach the gospel to those who don't want it preached to them, right? That's what Romans 12 commands us to do. 
But we must have the theology of Romans 13, which is what that booklet that's being so criticized is talking about. We've got to have that theology in order to consistently practice the love that we as a church are commanded to practice. And David was almost forgetting that balance. Now, the last thing that she throws out there is that there are innocent people who can be hurt when people take vengeance into their own hands. There's collateral damage. Now, in this case, she would be one of the ones who would have suffered at David's hands. So she says, But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Now, of course, she's been so gracious, so humble in her entreaty that it was impossible for David to be upset with her. He blesses her. He repents of his sin. He receives her gift. He assures her he's not going to do any harm uh, to them. But David was so impressed with this woman that when her husband died, she asked her if, if she would marry him, and she did. Now, that's a, another story for another time. Uh, we won't get into that today. But I think that there is so much that we can learn for our own peacemaking efforts from this wonderful, wonderful woman. Now, hopefully my systematizing it for you in the outline will trigger your further thinking on this and studying it and saying, Lord, make me a peacemaker like this woman. May God prosper all of our efforts for peacemaking. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this, your word. We glory in it. And it is our desire that the characteristics of Romans 9 and 1 Corinthians 13 and 1 Samuel 25, which we richly evidenced in our lives, cause us to grow in this grace of peacemaking. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.